The Game Schooler Podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, is a weekly audio show that educates new and experienced gamers about the joys of tabletop gaming. In this week's episode, we'll cover My Lil Everdell, our Game of the Week, interview Dan Cunningham in the School of Gaming, and wrap it up with our High Five Space Games. Welcome to the Game Schooler Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Kotecki, along with my co-host, Dr. Michael McCabe. How's it going, Michael? What's happening, Doug? How are you? I am fantastic. It's uh, I do need to get something out of the way uh, right out of the gate, as I apologize for the, <laughs> the late release of the podcast last week. I uh, was prepared and had my mind on shoveling snow, Well, the- and then a whole day went by, and I said, you know what? I don't think I released the podcast. I had a whole corrective action plan already, Doug, ready <laughs> oh, to go right into your permanent file for the Game Schooler podcast. Yeah. No. Uh, did you get things shoveled? We had we yes. had quite the storm. Yeah, six or six or eight inches or yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, no, it's good. I saw it. It came out on Saturday. It's still just as high quality <laughs> as if it would have been on Friday, right? I think that's okay. I think our listeners might not have even known the difference. Well, because we'll when see. you're subscribed, it's automatic. It just yeah, it just shows up when it in. happens. I, I had something happen today, podcast-related. You know, I keep I keep very clear lines and boundaries between personal and professional life, right? Well, in my professional life, I, uh, I, was, I lead monthly calls, and we've got schools from all over the state. And I had a school leader... Uh, Mention the podcast, and then we stayed on after and talked, and and so I just it was one of those things, kind of one of those first time things where hearing that people in schools who are starting their own podcasts, especially in secondary schools, you know, high schools and upper middle schools, um, it was just interesting, and it got me thinking about yeah, if you're in a school setting, because we know a lot of different folks, right, and yeah. Because this guy's comment was, how do you guys put out so much content? And I, and I told him, we just do one podcast a week. I mean, we don't, we don't do video. You know, I, yeah. I gave him the old line of, I, my mom says I got a face made for radio and all that. And, but if you're just getting started, then I think 110 episodes really seems daunting. But it was, it was just kind of a cool little moment. And if people are... Getting started in the podcast world, even if it's not board gaming related, just reach out to us at email at GameSchooler, and we love to talk shop anytime. So, All right. What else is awesome this week? Well, I brought No Mercy to the table, a card game designed by the good doctor, Reiner Knizia. This has completely taken over our house. In the last six days, we have played it seven different sessions. So not seven different games, because usually we'll play four or five games. <laughs> so seven different sessions. And it's uh, it plays up to five players, I believe. The rules are all in Korean. So I actually had to look up the rules and print them off of uh, BGG. But fun little game where you're just flipping three cards up and those go into your hand. And then if a repeat comes up after that, what are you laughing at, man? I, that I, used to be known as Cheeky Monkey in 2007. Go ahead. Bring bring the heat. Okay, so 
What's awesome? I'm trying to tell him about a game I like. You can't even I, keep a straight face. Go I, ahead, Doug. Well, well, I just thought it was funny. Because Hijack the question that you asked. Go ahead. I'm listening now. <laughs> I, I wanted to look it up on Board Game Geek. And so I looked it up. No Mercy, published in 2021. And then above there, it says that it re-implements Cheeky Monkey. And then I click on Cheeky Monkey. And, and then it says re-implemented by Inc. Family Inc. and No Mercy. I was going to get to all that, man. I just think I just thought I, it was funny that it was written in that the instructions were Korean. So I'm assuming there had to be some sort of U.S. version. Well, there's a French version called Hit, which is the exact same art, and that's where I pulled the the rules from. But very long story, very short, super lightweight game, one that the whole family can play. It, it, it's push your luck. So if if I flip a 8, a 10, and a 1, and if the next card that comes out is a 10, I bust, and those cards all go in the discard pile. But if my 8, 10, and 1, so after three cards are up, the, the next card that gets flipped, I can steal from other people. So let's say you have three fives showing, and I flip the five. Those three fives come to me. Hmm. And then once it goes all the way around gets back to my turn, those points get counted and flipped down. So and that that's the whole rules teach and uh, we have just we've loved it you know it's it reminds me of when Llama came into our house you had sure. introduced us to Llama back in 2019 and that thing took over our life <laughs> and we're going to see my my mother in law this weekend first thing my wife said is better pack no mercy she's gonna love that game so it's it's been that's been awesome how about you good so mine are all. Um, I know we've tried to get off of the hype train. Yeah, sometimes um, it's hard though because there's but, so many well, great games coming out. Well, and we are starting Build the hype. Get me we excited. are starting to go into the Gamma Trade Show season, the Origins, and you know titles that may get released at Gen Con are now starting to get announced. Things like that. Uh, so one of them is Point City, which yeah. I think has made a lot of our anticipated games things. That is currently on Kickstarter. So if that was something that was interesting to you, uh, go out and take a look at that. The other one was I was at, I, I don't know if we talked about this or not. Maybe we talked about it off air. But I was at Target and happened to see that they now have the Lord of the Rings adventure yeah. book game, which is really appealing to me. I like the Princess Bride one. Uh, we were going to talk about that at one point on the podcast. It just kind of kept getting pushed down the, the 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 rabbit hole there. And then they released a Wizard of Oz one, but this one came out and it's got the kind of the artwork from the yep. movie. Um, yep. And so I had all a hard of those time characters not buying it about three weeks ago. It was, there was a heck of a sale on it, and it was hard for me to justify buying it and not buying it at the same time. So I tend to just walk away when I get in that, that mode, uh, that, but it looks good. That doesn't seem to be the your case recently with the number of games that are coming into your household. Hey, if we want to go there, we'll go there. I was going to go there next. <laughs> so, but The walk away. The last thing that I have that's a, a newer one that I saw was they're coming out with a uh, Disney edition of Dixit, which is due for release in the second half of 2023. Have you ever played Dixit? Not yet. It's on my want to play list. So Dixit, uh, I'm very familiar with it. Tell is, our listeners. is almost like a, an apples to apples from the way back in the day. But essentially, you have a a hand of cards, and you will make a uh, a phrase such as Michael's legs, and then I'm gonna are awesome, <laughs> and then I'm gonna uh, take a card out of my hand with a picture on it that I think represents Michael's legs. Everybody else at the table is going to do that as well. And then you're hoping to get people to guess your card 
of which card was yours, but not everyone. So you don't want it to be so completely obvious. And then if you're contributing a card, you get points if if yeah. somebody guesses yours. So, but the idea of and and all of the cards in Dixit are kind of surreal and abstracted, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Really beautiful artwork. And so I thought the idea of some of the Disney art that was incorporated into the cards really looked cool. Right. Um, that intrigued me to, because I have Dixit, but it hasn't come out in a very long time. And Meaning where, you haven't played it in a very long correct, time. Correct, yes. Yeah. And I think, uh, so one of the uh, games that we had got, I got, had gotten excited about in the past was Disney Codenames. Yep. Um, and we're a big Disney family. We like that. You're actually wearing a Walt Disney hooded sweat, <laughs> a Mickey Mouse hooded sweatshirt. Right True, now. this is accurate. Um, and so I thought that that one would be really cool. But when we got into playing I am it, not. <laughs> when we got into playing it, it became clear that it was like this is much harder. Yeah. Because the parameters are so you tight have to have of that knowledge of the Disney universe, right? Well, that and a lot of the like, for example, a lot of the words. Um, like princess or castle or things like that that you might use for clues apply to so many different movies. So there might be cards that are all out there for Cinderella, Mm -hmm. and the words that you would use for that are the same ones that you would use for Snow White. Sure. And so it it was really hard for our kids. So I'm interested because I think this one might kind of solve that problem because it's a little bit more open-ended. Close the loop for me. Why are you excited about Disney Dixit? because it's a Disney theme on a game that I have not gotten to the table for a while. But you enjoy the game. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I think okay. it's a, I think it's All a right. good game and I think this will breathe new life in it for my family. Cool. Yeah, Disney has announced uh, several new titles that are coming out in 2023. I think Funko and Prospero Hall are putting out a few others as well. Yep. So all right, Excellent. so tell me about your collection. Yeah, and the- yeah, yeah. I spent some time in my friendly local game store last night after work. <laughs> uh, our friendly, my, I'll speak for me, my friendly local game store is Noble Knight. And the staff is friendly, the store is clean. I traded in a haul of games, which I like to do one to three times a year. And I brought home a haul of games, which I like to do weekly too too often (laughs) uh but it got me thinking doug douglas if i may it got me thinking about the game stores that our listeners support and i thought you know i i haven't heard this on any other podcast i would love to hear a little write-up from some of our listeners Mm. so uh, right now i'm calling to action the the mikes the marks the stephens the rodneys the the phils the nicks What's what's uh, the woman's name over in the UK that listens and emails us? Is it Nicole? Nicole, yes, <laughs> Nicole in the UK. Give us a drop us an email, email at gameschooler.com, and tell us what you like about your friendly local game store. What makes it awesome? Because in this segment, what's awesome with gaming? Game stores are awesome. Yeah. When I travel for work or when I'm at my in-laws, if I need to get away for a little bit. I'll go to a friendly local game store. Um, so I just love to hear what's out there. And email at gameschooler.com is where you can tell us about what makes your local game store awesome. And the folks at Noble Knight, I just love that they will take in games. And it's not gonna you're not you're not gonna get a, a ton, but you get a little bit, a little bit can go a long way. And then just a reminder, I also use that code, Schooler23, mm. saved 10%. 
last night. So that was nice. Beep, Knocked bop, it boop. down. Can That's I, all I got. Go can, ahead. Can I tell our listeners about our text exchange this afternoon? Sure. Uh, so, so Michael sent me a text <laughs> um, with some games that he's got set under the table, some new ones that he's got, ones that he wants to get played. And uh, he said that his solo review table is burgeoning. And I zoomed in on the picture, <laughs> and I texted him back, and I said, you know you have a problem when games are spilling into the dollhouse. Oh, right. So oh. there's a dollhouse in the background, and on its porch are some exit games, blank, love letter. <laughs> so, you know, I don't even need to say in my defense. Every single wall in my basement has a dollhouse on it. Not only does Barbie Malibu dollhouse that my 14-year-old got when she turned four or five for my grandma, rest in peace, is on one end of the dollhouse, but then there's an heirloom built from my wife's grandfather, rest in peace, on the other hall, and then there's an LOL dollhouse that is completely ginormous. Then my kids made one out of cardboard boxes. Like, so, Doug... I, I don't take offense to it. So, sounds I like can't you got a subdivision move in my basement without running into a dollhouse. A, a dollhouse subdivision but going on. That in little the stack, what do I do with those games? Those are the exit games and love letter, and they don't quite fit in a calyx. Apparently, Barbie's enjoying them. Yeah, so I think good that's for a her. great spot for those her. Are, those are like the convention size versions <laughs> for the Barbies. Sleeping Gods, Planet Unknown, Wormholes. <laughs> that looks like a good weekend. A little Siege of Rundar and Grim Forest. Giddy up. Can't wait to get those played. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the game of the week. But before that, I want to remind everybody to spread the word about the podcast if you like what we're doing. And a reminder to contact us with questions or comments, anything you'd like, at email at gameschooler.com. Yeah, the only thing to add in on that, when you do talk to us, let us know if it's okay to mention your name and who you work with on air. Because sometimes I get a little hesitant to do that. And I'm terrible at saying, do you mind if I mention you on air i usually that's why sometimes i keep it more general when i'm talking about oh this person you know what i mean so that's helpful all right well let's move on to the game of the week the game of the week the game of the week is an in-depth look at a (laughs) family-friendly game with you should try if you get the chance. This week's game is authored by James A. Wilson and Clarissa A. Wilson, and it is My Little Everdell by Starling Games. Doug, give us the stats. All right, this one was published in 2022. It came out kind of as a surprise out of nowhere at Essen. Is that when that got released? No, it was PAX. Wasn't oh, was it? it? Yeah. Been, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the art is by Andrew Bosley and Jaquay Davis. One to four players, 30 to... Jackie, Doug. Is that? Yeah, Jackie. Yeah. I apologize. One to four players, 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, The box says six plus. Board Game Geek says eight plus. And I'm going to go with a solid seven is probably the starting point. Yeah, and that's a hyper gamer seven. Uh, You know, we talked about my youngest, Liza. Plays plays a lot of card games, right? But not my little Everdell. Um I, I really think eight plus, unless you have a seven-year-old that is very confident, or if you partner up. That well, well, I, I've, I've partnered up with Eliza and played this, and it's fine. I think so. I played this last night, not last night, but the night before, with 
uh, an 11-year-old and my 7-year-old. Yep. And the 7-year-old, we just kind of threw her in there, and she handled it with some guidance. But I, yes, I think that's the perfect example. The 7-year-old is ready for her own Netflix stand-up comedy special. Truly (laughs) able to, to think and make people laugh, and having... You, her dad, and her older sister in there, and, and catching it on the right night—that's that's probably the way to go. If I were to just take this into a second grade classroom no, and try yes, to play with yes, two other people's yeah. kids, I, I would not be able to handle. Yeah, that. and kind of jumping ahead, I, I feel like this truly is a best fit with families. Yeah, let's and, go right there. Let's go right <laughs> to the end. Uh, but I, I think yeah. it's a best fit with families and where the age group is varied. Yeah, I think it really works good. well in that. But I also think cousins. If it's uh, this, could be you know, if you have eight to twelve year olds and they're they're cousins, this could be a, ga- a cousins type game where just the kids are playing. I yeah. don't think an adult has to be involved as long as you have a confident gamer or two really sure. leading the way yeah. because of what we're about to talk about. Yeah, but to your point, also not. I, I agree with you that a class of seven year olds where all of the gamers are seven is probably a disaster. Yeah. You need some other people guiding the ship. So Those berries are going to be bouncing all over the floor. <laughs> all right. Introducing the best board game for little fans of Everdell. Are there little fans of Everdell? There are now. <laughs> My little Everdell. Join Chip, Sweep, and the other kids of Everdell to build the most spectacular, make-believe city anyone has ever built. This easy-to-learn worker placement and tableau-building game will provide family fun while getting the little ones' brains buzzing, improving focus, and enhancing young learner skills. Climb across the rope bridge, watch out for the Dragon's Den, and join us in the fort for the latest edition of the award-winning Everdell line, My Little Everdell. Folks, that is very ambitious flavor text that that really doesn't... Nice try, publisher. (laughs) You're not going to improve your focus as a skill. There's so many other skills that I think you could... That we'll talk about. Yeah, That's a little bit of a stretch. So so here's the gameplay. Yep. Um, On your turn... You are going to be placing workers out. You're going to start by rolling some dice. These dice have uh, more than one goodie on them for you to get at those worker placement spots. Two to three different resources. And those resources, those spots, only one worker can go to. But then there's generic ones where any number of workers can go to, and you're just getting one of that resource type. So you're going to roll the dice to determine what those spaces are. Then everybody has car, may have cards in front of them that are going to uh, be gathering cards that are going to bring in some resource generation every round um, at the start of the round. Then you take turns. Basically, you're placing a, uh, the game calls them friends. You're going to be placing friends out, getting resources from the space that you put them on. And then if you can afford to, you're going to buy cards from the marketplace to then play in front of you as your tableau. Yeah, if you have the resources stacked, you get to buy the cards. And the way that it's set up, it's very easy to buy those cards. I mean, basically, by the second turn, everybody's getting a card. And if you min-max it properly, you can get a card on your first turn through turn 12. Yes. So then you're going to return once everybody has has three workers. There's no way to get more workers. Everybody brings their workers back home. The start player transfers, and you start it all over again for four rounds. There's four different types or five different types of cards in the game. There's green cards, which activate once you play them, 
and again, that happens in that gathering phase. Doug, let's pause here. Yeah. Let's let's talk about some of what you're about to say is the same as Everdell. So sure. our listeners who listened on episode 100 where we talked at length about it. So as you're going through, if you kind of want to just cue to that, yeah. you get what I'm saying? Yeah, but I don't think it's... I, you want this game to stand alone? Yeah, I don't think it's relevant because we're trying to... This game works as it's an independent game. Your knowledge of Everdell is irrelevant. Oh, I disagree wholeheartedly with you, but go. You think that you need to know Everdell to play this game? I don't think you need to know Everdell to play this game. I think if you know Everdell, it's a shorthand for everything that we're about to say over the next seven to ten minutes. And I'm, yes. And I would say that I feel like if you know Everdell, all of this is going to make sense. I don't need to over explain it to them. But then they're just going to fast forward 45, forward 45. No, they're not. Okay. There may be something different. Teach Doug. Go ahead. I'm listening. I'm going to spend three more minutes on this and then we're going (laughs) to get into it. It's not a very complex game, Michael. Um, so your green cards are going to activate when you buy them. And then at the start of every round, you have blue cards that are basically bonuses for playing other cards. So they're going to activate as you, as you buy a critter or a house. house. Yep. You have tan cards, which activate one time and then they're done. So they give you a bonus and then they're done. Red cards give you a space in your own tableau that you can put a worker on. So it's basically making your own worker placement space. And the purple cards are endgame scoring that activate and giving you points for uh, one point maybe for every red card that you have acquired throughout the game. The last part of this game... farm cards. Did you talk about those? Is uh, farm cards. The cards that activate? Those are the green ones. Green ones, okay. Yep. Yep. Um, And then the last part are parades. And these are kind of milestone achievements that the first person, for example, to get five places takes the top tile, which is worth six points. If somebody else does that afterwards, they're going to get one less point and so on as you work down the stack. Uh, there's one for five places, five critters, at least one of each colored symbol, or three type three cards of the same color except green. Yeah. So, And then at the end of the game, you're going to get points for all of the, the buildings and critters you've built, some of your resources. You can trade into two to one. And then your purple bonus cards, and that's it. That is the gameplay. Fairly simple. There's a reason that uh, you know the publisher says seven plus right. or six plus. But anything else to that? No. Before I, getting into discussion about what we liked or didn't like. No, I. The only thing to add to that, I do think this is one of the best introductory worker placement games that mm. that I've come across. Uh, the so. Standing alone from the whole 20-pound, 3-ounce Everdell complete collection, yeah, right? But this My Little Everdell, a game that would fit in a small pizza box, really does a great job of introducing the concept of you have three workers, you can put them out on the board, and you get to take the resource. With the resource that you got... You can select a card or you can save up and hope that that card is there when you have all of those resources. Yep. It is so darn simple. There are 12 total turns in the game. The game plays in 25 minutes yeah. with one to three players. It's yeah, that, that just 30... some of those basics that I think they, they just captured when you talk. You, the gamer words are, oh, it's streamlined. It's it's straightforward. No, it this is a really tight, sharp little game. Yeah, and the 30, 60 minutes, I think that 60 minutes 
is probably a game of you playing with all seven-year-olds. Yeah. Right? I, I, mean, I actually saw it the exact opposite way. I saw that as, oh, that's that's a game night. <laughs> that That's four people who just got done with a heavy Euro need a quote-unquote palate cleanser, and they're going to min-max and talk about which spot they should go to. But and- there's a that, the only problem, I would normally agree with you, except that the there's only so much you can do. Well, so there's we not can a, time it tonight at eleven o'clock. We'll get it out with Dan, and we'll we'll set the clock and see how long it takes. I mean, I think that this piggybacking on what you said, I think this teaches worker placement and the building blocks for Everdell yeah. so well. Um, my oldest daughter wants to play the full version because of playing this game. It has simple rules with strategy. My kids love the artwork. Artwork, you know, great. and draws them in. Um, not have, you know, not, I don't have boys, so I don't know if that's a a gender thing or not uh, that, that my kids are, my girls are drawn to the cute little critters. I don't, I don't know. Um, the small box size though, you mentioned it, you know, that it can fit in a pizza box. This is about an, a quarter, an inch and a quarter thick. yeah. Yeah. Maybe an inch and a half if that. So it does not take up a lot of space on the shelf. But it feels like there's a lot of game in there. There is a ton of game in there, and the resources are great too. It's what you would expect from an Everdell game. They're and the same as up, the Everdell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the components are the same as Everdell. So it's just another. The artwork is is identical. So there's yeah. all these carry through threads, right? Especially if you like, if you compare that to like a, a My Little Scythe. Yeah. Um, is that what's called? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, the mechanisms are the same, but it's a whole different universe and ecosystem if you were to graduate somebody from My Little Scythe to Scythe, right? Right. This is yeah. a direct carryover of like, all right, you've mastered this, now let's go on to the next one. Yeah, and the game Doug's referring to My Little Scythe was a, a game of the week all the way back in uh, episode 39. We talked about it and had both of our, our daughters, who are very good friends, on the show with us because that that is a game that stands alone and at the same time Margaret loves my little scythe but like you just said she would have no interest in jumping into a a dystopian post-apocalyptic <laughs> world of scythe whereas when you go from my little everdell making the jump to everdell the biggest jump that you're making is twofold one is text yeah and two is the combos in yeah. my, and so now I'm really talking to our listeners that are familiar with Everdell, and yep. I'm not going to over-explain too much, but in my little Everdell, there just aren't not a ton of combos. The way that the combos work, some of the cards, when you get them, then every uh, every house that you build in the future, you're going to get a point. Or for each additional critter that you, that you acquire, you're going to get a point. So it's very straightforward. To me, the text in this is similar to a kiddo who's learning to play a game like Animal Crossing on the Switch. Right now, my seven-year-old has jumped into that and loves it. Where There's some reading that's required, but for the most part, if an adult is in the room and can tell you what's going on in the screen, you can navigate your way around that world, right? And that's my little Everdell. And that so I do think that seven-year-old with an adult, that's a great place to start. Eight, nine-year-old who, who've played games, they can play independently. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I, I really like about this game is that it's adaptable and has handicaps that you can build into the game. Yeah. To, so when we played it, so Careful, my, though. My, my oldest <laughs> daughter is, is a gamer. 
you know, and she knows her ways way around games. And so I gave both of them like the double good handicap and she crushed everybody. That's very undug like. I'm surprised. <laughs> so, so she crushed us. Um, but me and my youngest got the exact same score. So it's like that put that level right on, on perfect. And if, if, if Emily didn't have that extra boost, she would have been right there with us. So I like that it's adaptable and it's a game that I think is one of the few ones that is fun for kids and adults. Oh, I can yeah. be engaged and playing this game. And because of the constraints of the game, like there is no, I'm going to crush you right. type of thing. It's like, I'm going it's to do balanced. the best thing Everybody's for me. Everybody's going to get 12 turns. It's so bad. Yeah. It's- and so that is really hard to do that I feel like I could take you know, my youngest daughter, my parents, and myself and play this game or throw in a brother. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the combination is. Everybody's going to have a good time. So my only concern with the game is that I think the titling of this game may be a hindrance to it Mm. because I feel like I could play this with my brother and his family and his in if if this didn't say my lil right in front of it yeah and i presented it as a game i'm not saying that i'm presenting everdell but i don't think that they'd be like oh this is a kids game no i i get that i just don't know if the designers and publishers had a ton of choice in that where you you can't put junior on it you, you yes. you know i feel like they i don't know ha- what they, they ha- what they can do but I do feel like the same way that if it said junior, it'd be like, yeah. I feel like this game should be sitting on the shelves side by side with a lot of the games that are at Target. Yeah. Like Golden Ticket but and here- Summer Camp. This could sit right by side by side, but is going to be looked over because a, a 15-year-old is going to say, my little, I'm not buying but that kid's he- game. Here's I-, I like it. Here's how I would address that. I would point to the gigantic box behind you of 20 pounds, three ounces, or the Everdell box and say, hey, this is a game that it's going to take me 25 minutes to set it up. It's going to take me another 25 minutes to tell you how to play it. And then it's going to take us about an hour. So instead, we're going to play this game. And then you're going to see if you want to play the other game. I would almost walk into that. Well, I'm just, I'm more talking about a mark and on the marketing end and attracting people into the hobby that. Oh, I get that. But that's not not my problem is what I'm saying. I I don't see that as. Well, it's my, it's it's my problem is saying there's a great game that's being overlooked because of the title and the, the perceived. idea of the game possibly there's no possibly about it if this was on the shelf at target and you walk by it you're not going to pick it up well i am well and then i'm going to use the enthusiasm for the game to try to pull others in i guess that that's i'm kind of attacking your nitpick a little bit because i think the game is so good same way as my little scythe and we didn't talk about this back in episode 39 but the same way the game is just so good that that my little kind of disappears Right, it, it, it's like the Doritos. It might say spicy nacho cheese, but by the time you get the fifth Dorito and you forget that they're spicy, you're just going to keep eating them. Yeah, it, but it I think it's a hard. I think I still think it's a harder sell for non-gamers. Okay, you know that I that I, I bring this home for family Christmas. The kids all go to bed and I say, "Hey, we're going to play My Little Everdell," and, and I'm going to get cross-eyed looks. Now that doesn't uh, you're probably right. That I, doesn't mean that it's not a great game, and that at the end of the experience, the people won't love it. Yeah. But it's going. It's creating preconceived 
notions of the game that don't necessarily need to be there. And I'm not saying that it's a, it's more of a disappointment on me because I feel like if the title was like, even if it was like River Everdell or something, you know, anything. Riverdale? They no. might they might have ran into issues with that one. <laughs> I didn't, say, but Everdell River, whatever <laughs> yeah. you know, some some little subtext on it. Yeah, yeah. That 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 would sit on a shelf at Target and be grabbed and being but, played in a lot more households and spreading our hobby and being enjoyed by a lot more people that may not pick it up just because of the title. But this is why you're a successful business owner, and I'm just a lowly government employee, <laughs> okay? Because really, what I the issue that I've run into is Everdell is one of my favorite games of all time. Yet by the time I get everything set up with the darn tree and everything else and all the woodland creatures, my family walks by or my in-laws walk by, and they're like, ugh, can't we just play Quacks of Quedlinburg? Can't we just do this? Can't we just do that? And to me... My little Everdell solves that problem. Two of my kids have played it, and well, now they're a, interested. Like you just said, they are interested in the other game. So here's the difference, though, and and I think it's the the when they're publishing this game, their audience was to people that already know it's Everdell. Us. Okay, that's clear. And so that works for you because you already know Everdell, and you can say, "Hey, let's try this. It's a little bit simpler." But for the mass audience of people that know nothing about Everdell as a game in general, that this could be sitting on a shelf named something else without a My Lil or Junior or Starter or My First, like this is a quality family game that is not going to get the attention that it. I think it should. Well, it's it's fun to disagree and arm wrestle again, but I think we got to move on to some of our <laughs> skills because we, we've got Dan coming in. We're going to play some games tonight. <clears throat> Do you have any more to say, or are you, uh, are you wrapping up? Because no, I have but, a few more things to say. Yeah, I'm just looking over my notes. I mean, it's easy to get set up and playing. It's super that's, easy. That's another thing that's nice is that you're set up in about three minutes. Fast, fun, feels like Everdell. And I, now I'm talking to folks out there who like to solo game. This is a game that I can... Set up, play, and take down in 30 minutes. To me, that's ding, ding, ding. That is a lunchtime game. Now I have Guild of Merchant Explorers and My Little Everdell. Two lunchtime games, you know, and and the other thing too, nine o'clock at night, I don't really feel like reading a book. I'm not going to sit down and turn on the television. I, this one I'm making up, it's kind of a stretch, but this is a game that you could get out and play in a half hour. Um, with one other person or by yourself. Uh, so just the, the setup and takedown is so quick. There's a little bit because you have to get on the first play, though. You get the boxes set up and get everything out, but then it yeah. plays really fast. Uh, from a gameplay standpoint, I think the the skills of, of observ- observation and tactical thinking are huge because mm-hmm. the cards are coming out of that marketplace all the time, and you have to look at... Okay, which cards are am I going to be able to get? What components and resources do the other players have? Um, if you are playing it solo, there's there's two different solo setups: one that takes away cards, and the other one that takes away resources. So it, there, there's just a lot in that box to get the whole Everdell uh, feel. Yeah, I've got. Uh, of course, there's resource management in this this game where you're acquiring and, and figuring out how to spend goods. Uh, the competition in this game is really interesting, and it, mm. 
Uh, I like it because it came up in, in two different times with a younger gamer, which was there's an introduction to worker placement and the idea of you can't go there. Right. Like some of the spaces get blocked off. I and am there right now. You're going to have you, to wait. You can't go there anymore. Um, and the idea of somebody bought that card from the market before you. And so those are great competition things that uh, are not mean-spirited, but they are getting uh, younger gamers used to the idea of, like, you can't get everything. Yeah. Like, and... Well, they got that. They had the turn before you, and they had the resources, and they they got it. And yeah. and sometimes it's even with younger gamers, it's more about what the card is. It's like, oh, I wanted the teacher, or I wanted the school, or I wanted the king because I had the queen, or whatever. Um, that are not necessarily gameplay related when you get to the younger players, right? Um, but I like that that approach to competition. There is that little race to get those parade tokens. Um, the comprehension in this game of understanding how worker placement works and set collection and the end game scoring and just those systems that they're going to use if they ever graduate to Everdell is huge. And the big one... I is there an Everdell graduation song that gets played when you go from My Little Everdell <laughs> it, it could be. to the complete I'm collection? Sure, I'm sure Starling Games is working Leaf, on it. To Leaf, to Mistwood. And the last one is kind of a, a hybrid I have, which is processing information and the logistics, Ooh, which is say more. figuring out how your actions work, first of all. So we talked about those five different types of cards, is understanding and processing how they work, but then how they can chain together. So they don't necessarily have the combos that the, the full-blown Everdell has, but there is type of things where, oh, I got an early scoring card that's going to give me points for every red card that I get. Yeah. So now you're on the lookout for red cards, and... um. And if I can get other cards that can piggyback on top of each other. And, yeah, then, and that, then the idea of even long-term planning of how do I get the resources to gain that card? The if this, then that. Yeah, I want to jump in real quick on the first one that you said. It's training the gamer to look out for what's best for them. Which yeah. in the board game world is pretty critical. Yeah. Right? Like, which card is going to give me more points? Which of these two abilities chained together is going to allow me to take more actions? And so that that's yeah. really good. Um, the the only thing, and I'm just going to throw this out there, is is there a premium on berries in this game? Oh, gosh. Tell me more. Well, I just feel like a lot of the cards require berries. Yeah, there probably a, is, because one of the solo features is... You can play with Prince Periwinkle or Princess Periwinkle, and I might have that mixed up. But the prince goes in. First thing he does is go into the spot where there's the die and the multiple resources, right? And if those are two spots are full, because in the solo you're only playing with two die, then he goes and eats berry, and that spot's blocked out. So there must be, but there would have to be a premium on one of them with just the four resources. But why? Why are we going there? We're going pretty in depth. On no, this. I my, just my little Evan Everdale. I, I felt Riverdale like the, the, game. the first the first time we played it, and then the yeah. when I was playing it with with my girls, I felt like so many of the the market cards require berries. Yeah, and it's like you can really generate a lot of twigs and resin. But I felt like I'm holding on to these forever. Like I can never get rid of them at the same clip that I can get rid of berries. And I didn't, I anecdotally, I'm just wondering. I'm no, not saying it's a flaw with the game. But, but there's also a lot of cards that give you any resource, right? 
So as a bonus, yeah, yeah. Right? get any resource when you get a critter. Get any resource when this happens, when that happens. So, so. All right. Anything else before we move on? No, it's a fantastic little game. All right. So that is My Little Everdell from Starling Games. Let's move on to the School of Gaming. The School of Gaming. In the School of Gaming, we discuss concepts, keywords, etiquette, and helpful ideas in the world of gaming. Too many gamings in that sentence. We need to clean it up eventually. But this week, we'll be interviewing designer, developer, and insert creator, Dan Cunningham. Dan, welcome to the Game Schooler podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here finally <laughs> after so many episodes of... Well, I took 110. Yeah. Right, yes. Now, I'm going to start this off by... Dan, do you have any idea, I looked this up today in my email archives, when we first started gaming together? I looked it up last night. Aww. Let's see if this corresponds. All right. I, have, I just have a year. I mean, I know oh, the month. Yeah, I have March 2013. Oh, I had October 2013. Oh, okay. Maybe we had a couple that were just like getting to know each other kind of thing. <laughs> so either way. So when a, did this become serious? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, so it's been going on close to 10 years. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, so we're happy to have you here, Dan. Dan. Absolutely. Dan has been part of the gaming group for about 10 years, uh, but he's also very connected within the board game world. Yeah, let's start there. For our audience who may not be familiar with you or your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who are you, Dan? Sure. So um, I'm a, a local of Madison here for the, about 12 years. Um, prior to that, I've been out east. I've been from Iowa, but um, my engineering skills, which I do during my day job, has really helped me to break into the... He says humbly as a graduate of MIT. <laughs> well, yeah. yes, there is that. But um, it's, it's helped me break kind of into the, the production side of board gaming. Um, you know, I started out just as a board gamer playing. Um, I started going to things like proto spiels where we're play testing. Um, and then I got into the first game design kind of thing where then I even published a game on Kickstarter um, back in... Uh, 2016 20, is a published date. Yeah, 2016 was the release, but it was... Oh, 20, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk okay. about that. Um, but then... Uh, but yeah, I've, I've been able to branch out from there and use the experience from that Kickstarter to help other game designers and publishers either publish their own games or help with aspects of the games. Um, so in a lot of times I say I'm an engineering consultant for publishers. Engineering consultant for publishers. Wow, you got to get that title on Board Game Geek. I love it. You're also a father of many children. You're a hobby farmer. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've, you've. I feel like I bought a wand from you one time at a Harry Potter festival. Am yeah. I making that up or is <laughs> no, that real? Yeah, so absolutely. A man, man of many, many talents. <laughs> That's the thing he wants to be known for. I, <laughs> sure. I still have. Hey, it's on that dollhouse that you were making fun of earlier. It is. It's, it's right next to it. Purveyor right. of wands. <laughs> yes, yes. So what's your origin story with board games? How'd you get involved with the hobby? My... Whole families played board games forever. Um, I mean, my my dad and mom actually played Sid Saxon's Sleuth in college together, and that was kind of their dates. Uh, so they grew up or raised us playing board games. You know, we we played things like Hero Quest and Omega Virus, and you know the the standards of Risks and Monopoly. But uh, I was about ten years old, 
and heard about this strange game called Magic the Gathering that had just come out. Uh, and really, I had a group of friends that we all dove pretty deep into Magic, and and I, you know, that became a thing up until 2012. So I mean, I played for almost 20 years, um, but that kind of introduced me to the gaming society. I started going to conventions like Gen Con um, and saw a lot of the board gaming that was going. So after the whole magic thing kind of faded away and I sold it all, sold all my cards when I got married, started a family, moved to a new job. Um, right now someone is crying. <laughs> someone just had to pull over on the side of the road. They're uh, crying when they hear that. Yeah, Keep going. Yes. But uh, <laughs> at that point I was like, I need something that doesn't take quite as much time as magic did, um, but might be still game related. And so I started looking at board games. Um, 2013 started going to board game meetups in Madison and then the kind of the rest is history here with with the Doug and the and the 2013 game group start. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's where it's gone from there. Awesome. What you got, Michael? You oh, got, you I'll got, just you keep got, rolling here. Yeah, you got the question, Chip. So, all right, let's just jump right in then. Tell our listeners about what it's like to design inserts for some of the top games on the market. You, what the heck is a game engineer consultant? Dan? Sure. So, no, great question. And we did mention uh, early on that I'm working to help out other publishers. A big part of that is designing storage inserts um, or the vacuum form trays for a lot of the games. Um, I've worked on things uh, like Endless Winter, Paleo Americans was a big one that came out. Um, Role Player Adventures was um, another kind of very elaborate uh, storage system. Rurik, Dawn of Kiev, Harrow County, um, Tenpenny Parks. Harrow um, County's not out yet, is Harrow, it? You're right, it's not. And All right. We did more than just the storage on that one. That'll be an exciting one. All right. Um, Imperial <laughs> Spells and Steam. And I mean, there's, a, there's actually probably a good dozen games that I've done stuff that are either in process Generally, um, if you're thinking, if your question is more about what it's like as in the process, um, normally the publishers come to me now at this point. Um, Look at I mean, that. I'm just doing this for fun, two hours a night at most. So I've, when I've got five, six projects ongoing, that's enough for me. Um, so I've got enough lined up. The publishers come to me. We start to chat about the game. Most of the time, the publishers haven't kickstarted it or haven't produced it. So we start to figure out, all right, what is the best way to store these things? What are the sizes of everything? We build out some rough sketches. Uh, and then if it's pre-Kickstarter, we often leave it at those rough sketches for now. Because inevitably, um, they're going to change. The quantities change. The sizes of things change. Sure. Um, but then... Before production, we kind of work through the, the final design of all of those storage solutions, whether it's two, two different trays with two lids, or sometimes it's just cardboard boxes. You know, there's a variety of different things. Um, but it's, it's pretty amazing to then be able to build a system that when the gamer buys it and brings it home, they think, wow, this really did help not just in storage, but the whole point of this is to help the gameplay as well. Well, and the setup. I mean, yeah. to, be, to be able to get a game set up and going right away from the box in a lot of cases. And, you know, for being around the hobby for so long, you and I can remember when, like, Fantasy Flight games would come out. And, and Fantasy, Fantasy Flight's still not great, but it was like, here's our box, and here's our st standard cardboard insert, and it with no concern whatsoever of what components are actually in the box. Like, here's the yeah. box, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the, the, um, the number of, publishers and companies where it was like, I feel like Days of Wonder might have been one of the first ones. Yeah. It was like, oh, this actually, these pieces go in this exact spot, but the amount of games that you would just get and it was like, I guess I just put all these pieces back and <laughs> throw them back in, but how much that has helped with 
setup, teardown, and gameplay has been huge. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like when the game started and up until, I would say, the mid-2000s, the boxes were just a carrier for the components. You know, you would dump the thing out and put it together. Whereas now you've, you've, the publishers are looking at the full package, using the box as a way to not just store the pieces, but enhance the experience. And so you no longer have boxes that are grayboard in the inside with no printing. You get these elaborate systems that sometimes the box is part of the game setup, yeah. um, and you, or the trays will come out and each player gets their own tray and it's already set up for them. Or there's even games in the last couple of years where you're using the trays as your player boards, right. for instance. So there's some great ones out there. So it's just enhanced in the hobby, like the whole experience. Yeah. And what makes playing board games awesome? <laughs> no, it's a great question. Um, and For that, you. <laughs> for me, yes. No, so the listeners might not know, but obviously you guys know, I am both a, uh, a social gamer as well as a solo gamer. So when uh, I've heard you ask this question to different people, so I was thinking about this one. For me, what makes playing board games awesome is the amazing experiences that you can have either with people or even solo. And sometimes it's the sense of accomplishment that brings that experience. Um, and that covers both solo and interaction. A lot of times when you're playing a solo game, it's like a puzzle in front of you and you get a sense of accomplishment when you either beat the puzzle or you beat your previous score, so you're kind of beating yourself. But for me, what makes playing games awesome is the experience of accomplishing something really cool. And you get that feeling of, ooh, exciting. That's awesome. And, and dominating opponents. And Sometimes. all the times <laughs> that we've asked that question, we've never had anyone talk about beating themselves <laughs> as, as part of an awesome experience. But no, that, that's really good. So well, playing how, with people and being able to get that sense of accomplishment so, on your own. And I've known you as being a, uh, a solo gamer for a while, you know, as uh, before I, it was cool. Before yeah, it was yeah, cool, like yeah. that. And even the idea of just like setting it up on the table and, and running through it, even if you, oh, yeah. there was not a solo mode. So how mm -hmm. has that, like the solo concept, I know COVID had a big impact on implementing solo, but I feel like that, that, um, Train was already on the tracks before COVID started, where that was becoming more of a of an uh, a genre that people were playing into. So, how has that changed from when you started to now? Sure. So, <laughs> interesting. So, when I started playing games, it was more social, and then I started discovering that hey, solo games do exist, or solo versions of games exist. And I started culling my collection to I'm only going to own games that I can play solo in a reasonable way. So that was sometimes look for uh, solo versions that other people have built and maybe aren't official or games that actually just have a built-in solo version. Um, and for a long time, that was kind of a hindrance towards what I would buy um, because they're, you're right, they're at the 10 years ago, there weren't as many solo games. But even five years ago, you started to see this uptick in solo. And even on on forums on Board Game Geek, the the general consensus was, well, why would why would I play a board game solo? I could just turn on Madden, like you mentioned, you know, th last week. But really, it to me, it's more than just it, the experience of sitting down and doing something by yourself. There's also the physical aspect of it, and I really do think that it's become much more normalized. Yeah, and now you look you look at a game sideways if it doesn't have a solo mode in that. Why didn't they put it in? They must have had a good reason not to put in a solo mode. You know, did they think it would be too expensive, too difficult? And publishers often even come out and say, 
Solo didn't give the experience we wanted, right. so yeah. this is why we didn't. But more often than not, most games have solo modes now. It's well, and they some some games with solo modes. The publisher Oath is one game that I'm thinking of. The same people that did Root, yeah. um, Cole Worley, states right in the rule book, or else on a video. I think it's right in the rule book. This game is intended to be played with multiple people. Yeah. You know, so basically, like, yeah, you could take it on solo if you want. We designed a mode. But you're going to want to play this with other people to get that experience of fighting and taking over different areas and things like that. So more than once, I've got gotten a game to the table, watched a video, started to read the rules, and just realized like I don't want to play this alone. I want to <laughs> yeah. play this with other people. So I wonder, but I wonder like how much, and it doesn't affect me because I'm not as much of a solo gamer. But the idea of for you saying where it's becoming more acceptable and more of the norm where it almost becomes a thing of like, I have to have this on my game <laughs> and it becomes an appendage. Like have you, where, where some people are like, well, it has to play f- five to six players or four to fit on the shelf. Like we're going to be playing a game later that is max is out at three. Mm-hmm. They said, this is a three player game max done. And it's like, I appreciate that as opposed to, Oh well, we needed to say four on the box, so right. we're gonna throw this in. How many times do you feel like the solo is just thrown in? I think in general, <laughs> there are certain types of games that the, a solo mode is is harder to work for, um, and most of the time, those types of games try to build an AI <clears throat> that simulates another opponent and makes actions that represent what a person might do. Personal experience. There, I don't like those as much. Um, I like solo games that have a system built in that you're either fighting against or you're trying to optimize. A solo mode that tries to simulate another person is not my preference towards a favorite. And yes, okay, there are probably, we may be gone a little too far yeah. into the everything needs to be solo. And that's even a, a, a joke on, on forums. It's like, oh, why, why, you know, wh- yeah. why, why doesn't right. this have solo? But, you know, I well, do think there's Well, it's become kind of, something where people argue about the best type of solo now, right? I like high score. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I like, you know, yeah, c- yeah, kind of what you're saying. I, you designed a game. I want to shift gears there. That sure. had a solo variant. That's true. In 2016. Mm-hmm. So, Loon Architects, what do you love about designing games for people to play, and what led to Loon Architects? Great question. So, the story behind Loon Architects, which I won't get into too much detail about it, was... Why, are you afraid of getting sued or something? No, not quite. Okay. But <laughs> okay. I did, um, so, back in the 2013-2014 time frame, I'm just getting started into board games. I'm just doing some designing. It turns out what I was doing really liked to do was developing. I didn't mm. know it at the time. Um, but I played a game uh, called Glenmore, which was um, probably, I didn't check the date, it was probably around 2000, I don't know, eight. I, but it was by Matthias Kramer. And it, by the time I was playing it, it was mostly out of print in the US. And I was a little sad by that because I loved the game ridiculously much. Um, I loved it so much that I was like, I could see some things that I would prefer if it was slightly different, just for me. So I started to develop it past where the publisher went, just for my own preferences. You know, I rethemed it, I adjusted some things, I even pulled some rules out and changed things. And it got to the point that I was enjoying it enough that I thought maybe other people would enjoy it too. Because now it's targeting a different person. I mean, and you asked about, you know, what is it that you love designing about games? Um, I really love fitting people's preferences into 
different games. And so in my case, I liked science fiction and space games a little bit more than I liked the Scottish Highlands. Not that Scottish Highlands is bad. I've actually was involved. We're going to get hate mail now, Doug. (laughs) Weren't we clear about this? Yeah, Scottish Highlands are terrible. You should never visit or live there. One of the first games I helped with in a production standpoint was Clans of Caledonia. So Mm. I definitely have my side of the the, the Scottish Highlands love, too. (laughs) All right, credibility Um, restored. (laughs) But back to that architect. So I got to the point where I was like, I think other people would like this. I'm going to see if I can publish another version as a love letter to Glenn Moore. So I reached out to the designer, Matthias Kramer. I interacted with him, had some discussions, and he basically, at the time, gave me the okay to like, all right, you can move forward. So at the bottom of the box, I said an homage to Glenn Moore by Matthias Kramer right on there. And uh, when we went to Kickstarter, it came out mostly towards the end of the Kickstarter that Matthias Kramer maybe wasn't as okay with it as he had indicated earlier, which, okay, maybe there was, maybe it was not clear. I'm not really positive, um, but there was definitely some bad feelings that went forward with that. Um, but it was still a successful Kickstarter. We still printed 1,200 copies. I sold out within a couple months. Um, but that really has kind of said, all right, I'm done with that. That That's enough of So that architects. one experience... Pushed you away from Loon Architects or pushed you away from designing? I'm not designing. Okay. Absolutely not. But the, the okay. whole idea of this Loon Architects as an homage to Glenn Moore. It's kind of spoiled. It, it spoiled that a little uh, bit. Sorry, man. Oh, no, no. It, do it's you okay. still get contacted for copies? Um, I no longer do. My website has said, you know, we've been sold out for X number of years. Yeah. Um, there are still occasionally games out on, like, the third-party marketplace. Well, Noble um, Knight has one, but it's $60. Is it? And okay. I, I, Dan, I love your yeah. game, uh, but, but man. <laughs> well, they're hard to come by. Yeah. I mean, like I said, they're only Pretty soon it'll be copies. $445. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> I mean, there are still some people out there playing it and logging plays in Board Game Geek, so that's really cool, and I, I love the fact that something I helped make is still being enjoyed helped make you made it you made it so as the solo publisher yes you (laughs) interact with a lot of designers you you're involved you know uh, your games stan kordonsky and keith mateka these are big time designers how what's one thing you would tell your past self that might be helpful for designers in general and for people who are adjacent next to interacting with designers on a consistent basis. No, it it ties right in with what happened with Lunar Architects. Something I learned from that is that uh, the game design and development process takes way more time than you would expect it to. It it sucks you in. Now, most people see a design and, and they might say, oh, I've got an idea for design. You know, I could spend a couple months getting it figured out, getting it solved, and great, I've got this design. The trouble is that's probably only the first quarter of it. You know, the development of a title takes as much time as design of that title. And we see it, you know, as I'm interacting with all these designers around in the Madison area, we play prototypes of people, say, pitching to Keith at Thunderworks, for instance, that, yeah, on the surface, they look like a good game. But when I look at it, I think, wow, that's going to take a bit of work to become publishable. And that's just not really always seen because a developer is not as famous, I would say, as a designer. They don't get their name on the box. But how does that help? So what what are you telling your past so self? So what I'm telling my past self is if you think that you're done, you're oh, not done. Okay. You're gonna you've got tons of road ahead of you to iron out all those little tweaks. 
And then it extends all the way to the publishing side. That publishing is going to take way more time than you think it's going to as well. I mean, we look at uh, publishers that announce a game a year ahead of time, and you think, why are they waiting a year? I remember back in the day they would announce a game and it'd be out the next month. Well, that's literally working, you know, hours and hours a week on this thing just to get it to that point where it's a year down the road. The production just takes so long. And so, you know, give some give some breaks for time delays. And if you're a solo designer, solo developer, or solo publisher, expect that to be a ton of time into your life. And when you say solo, meaning if you're one human who's yes. trying to get this all done. That's what I mean. Yeah, like yep. we had John Spike on right. a couple weeks ago, and you could hear it. You know, that had oh, yeah. been his life. Well, and it's interesting because having a lens into your world of, of development and things like that, I feel like as we've played more games, uh, it kind of jumps out more when you play a game that maybe is underdeveloped hmm. or you play a game you're like, I think the designer just, that was one of his babies that he really fell in love with, mm. that probably that, that edge should have been sanded down a little bit, and maybe it wasn't. And those are the things that, you know, over the, the course of this podcast, we've talked about, like, clean games and yeah. The, yeah. The, the mechanisms being smooth and everything integrated great. Like, like Emerson Matsuchi, I think, does a great job of streamlining, getting those rough edges out. It's like water. You know, that that is so important that, like you said, that doesn't show up on the box and is kind of hidden on whether it's there or not, right, yeah. of, of whether it's in there. So you've talked about a few names and Tenpenny Parks. You know, that was a game of the week in episode 69. Uh, what You're a play tester, man. Like, what is that, and, <laughs> and why do you do it? Yeah, so play testing, um, it, it takes a lot of phases of play testing a game, which means a design that you've got to a playable state, but it's not done. You're going to put people together in a room and play that game, knowing probably that changes can be made. And to be a little more specific, I think there's three phases of play testing. The first phase being this really rough and ready, um, you know, it. I just wrote these things down on a card, um, and and now we're going to sit it in front of some people, and maybe we'll only play two rounds and see if the game explodes. See if see if it just doesn't work at all, or hey, maybe there's a nugget within there, and th that's kind of that first phase of play testing. The second phase is more the refinement side of playtesting. Once a game is fun, there's nuggets of things in there, but maybe it just needs some balancing. Maybe you've got a game with player powers, independent player powers, and you want to try and rebalance those things. Now we need tons of people to play them to get a lot of games under you know, the publisher's belt to say, all right, this is overpowered, this one's underpowered, we need to rebalance them. And the final phase of playtesting I would call blind playtesting. That's when a publisher sends the game and rules in as complete a form as possible to someone and says, learn it, play it, give me feedback. And that's really kind of trying to give them the experience of unboxing the game, learning it from the rules, and seeing where the rough edges are. By that point, most of the time, the designs are pretty well baked. You're often just trying to figure out the iconography, is it clear enough? The rule book, does it teach it well? Um, and those are all phases of playtesting. So which phase do you enjoy the most? So the I, rough and ready, the refinement, <laughs> or the, the blind playtesting? I, I love the, the rough and ready and the kind of the middle phase. The blind playtesting, most of the time... I'm not as interested in that because often that takes a group of people and, you know, or sometimes it's solo, but 
I'm pretty often getting some of these rough and ready play tests. I actually attend a weekly play test group in Madison um, that gets together and play tests games that were either pitched to the publishers in the area or are games that some of the people are working on that are coming to these play tests. And often, you know, I tried to go, but I didn't know the password. They wouldn't let me in. But keep going. <laughs> no, keep going. It, it's open to anybody. But, uh, I doubt you know, it. it's. Uh, it, it really is, is a fun experience because you get to see this broad range of games. And a lot of times they are these first-time designers that might have pitched a game to, you know, for example, um, Keith at Thunderworks uh, will bring a game to that, that that someone submitted to him to say, you know, would you like to sign this game? And we'll look at it. We'll, we're under no commitment to say, yes, we've signed it, but we could say, well, we would need to work on this and this and this in order to make it a little bit better. But yeah, there's a good route in there. And in fact, that's how Tenpenny Parks became kind of my baby to develop, is I was at one of these meetups and a game was an amusement park themed game was put over the table and said, hey, let's play test this and see if there's a game there. And when we were play testing, I was very, I wouldn't say critical of it, but I was saying, all right, this part's good, oh, this part's good. You made somebody cry. No, uh, I've no, been no, in that setting no. with you. You had them cry. No, let me tell you, Nate, oh, Nate Linhart's no, that, a great guy. I, you know? <laughs> I love that game. I absolutely love it. I've, I've played it with so many uh, different people for the first time. It's been a game of the week here. Right. Uh, Doug has it firmly in his well, collection. I got, to, and I got to play one of the. You the, were a play tester the, too, the right? The generic first version. Oh, true. Wow. Yeah. Cardboard cutouts like paper. <laughs> Pre Ferris yes, wheel. Yeah. You were a play tester. I was a play tester. I'm going to get a t shirt now. Yes. <laughs> so why do you do it? So I do it for two reasons. One is to kind of help out the publishers because they always have way more games to play than they ever can play. Um, I've actually heard complaints from some of the publishers saying, I never get to play published games. I'm only ever play testing yeah. prototypes. Um, so I love to help out. But at the same time, seeing a broad spectrum of games helps me as a designer and developer as well um, because I see different mechanisms that uh, may never have been on the shelves before, might be unique to this designer's head, um, and you're seeing it in a very pure way. It's this prototype that they've boiled it down to. This is the, the mechanism or the game design that they've got, and that then helps me in the future to maybe put those ideas into other games. So it's really that, that breadth of games. I can play published games all I want, and but I can also be playing these prototypes. All right. Awesome. I just have one more question. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, in your day job, you're a product engineer at a well-known company. I won't say it here, but you would know them. You're an MIT graduate, as Doug mentioned. I am not, for the record. Uh, You hold a title for being world champion of Crokinole. Now, before you jump in there, you won a Crokinole tournament. Where at? Gen Con Con? Con 2017. Yes, yes. I did get a trophy for that. And you know more about Magic the Gathering than most. So surprise Doug and I. What's one thing we don't know about you? All right, I'm going to try two on you. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) So one is game-related and one's non-game-related. The first thing you guys might not know about me, I mean, I've known you guys for like a long time, 10 years at least, so this is kind of tough. But um, the non-game-related things, did you guys know that in college I minored in music and I performed, you could say professionally, because I was paid to sing choral choir operatic music with symphony orchestras and chamber orchestras. Do you guys know that? I'm recorded. I'm a recorded artist. I don't know what half of those words mean that you just said. So no, I didn't know that. Okay. But congratulations. Yes. No, that's you do have the voice of an angel. I've oh. told you that to your face more than once. <laughs> well, thank you. But 
The second thing is game related. Good. Okay. And, and maybe you have heard this one, but you know, I mentioned that I played Magic for 20 years-ish, and I got in early. I know this, I think. Okay. And so when I got out, I sold my whole collection. And did you know that selling that collection of 20 years where I played vintage and owned all kinds of stuff, I uh, actually paid off both mine and my wife's student loans and put a down payment on the house with that money. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And one of the stories that I love to tell is I sold a Black Lotus, the most expensive magic card. I sold my Black Lotus on eBay to someone in Brazil, which you know the Brazilian postal to, service to a Nigerian is not great. prince. Oh. No, it wasn't. But um, I put on the insurance form the total value of this thing. So when it showed up, he was mad at me. He said, "You should have put a dollar. Now I have to pay five hundred dollars to get it out of customs. You give me that five hundred. And I was like, "No, I won't." And he's like, "You do it, or they're going to destroy it." I said, "I'm sorry." I have to be legally, I'm legally obliged to put the total value. The postal server, the customs officers destroyed the Black Lotus. How do you they- live with yourself, Dan? <laughs> You're, so you are such a maniacal rule follower. <laughs> I, I, yeah, but, I, but, if some, but if something had happened to it. Right. Brazilian post, the- it gets lost. If I claimed a dollar on the insurance, I get nothing back. So that's a tough spot for both of us. <laughs> yeah, but that guy got nothing back. Yeah, that's what what did he give fault. you for the Black Lotus? <laughs> I, I won't How did eBay not get involved? I don't remember. Well, because he just refused to, to they, do the customs. So two other yeah. things about Dan. He just showed up at my house without knowing, without knowing where I was living to hand off a game this week. He tracked me down online. So our first <laughs> the first listener to do that. And then when I went out to the driveway to touch base with him, something he was just jamming the Game Schooler podcast, <laughs> doing research. Doing research. So it was Cramp. a little awkward cra- to hear he our cramping. podcast. Yeah. He got the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> no, I, I will. We I were will. talking really fast, too, guys. <laughs> In my defense. Two weeks ago with John Spike, that interview, you said no, no, you no, were neighbors good. with him, so I knew his address so I could find you. Great to give you a hard time. <laughs> All right. Well, as the uh, the designer of a space game, we thought we would keep Dan on for our, our next high five. So let's move on to the high five segment. If you're anything like us, you're constantly on the hunt for new games to try out. And this week, we go back and we talk about our high five Space games. So we talked about our favorite space games very early in the podcast. Didn't even look it up because I'm negligent. Um, but Michael wasn't on the list at that time. I didn't know the password. No, yeah, clearly not. It's Garfunkel, by the way. See, exactly. Um, I thought it was Neil Armstrong. What do I know? So we thought we would stick around episode with... Episode 16, Doug? Episode 16. So we'll have Dan jump in here with his uh, high five space games. I've got some honorable mentions. Uh, that I will Which throw we'll save up. to the end. Yes, in, yes. In, 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 in case nobody mentions them. I also I've, do too. I have two. I came in with seven, but I'm sticking to five. I will say that in putting this list together, my tippy top of the list was really easy, but then I have like a huge stretch of games. There's like eight games that are like all on the exact same level of like, eh, I could take them or leave them. That this I didn't hard. know where to put yeah. on my list. So yeah. I'm curious to see. I have no idea what Dan's going to put out here. I'm really <laughs> excited to see what he 
he puts well, on his list. Well, let's let the guests go first. Spoiler, Number five, Dan. In my notes, I have 18 games, but I had to whittle <laughs> them down to five. Yeah. So you might have a lot of honorable mentions. So I do, but I have some caveats, too, which helps oh, me Oh, we always have caveats. Yeah. Yes, so let's hear it. So my first caveat is I wouldn't put any tens. Oh, I like that. Only eliminates Lunarchitects. <laughs> <laughs> technically, that that would be more of a moon game, not a space game, anyway. Interesting. Um, and and the second one is I do have a handful of very heavy games that I do enjoy playing, which I'll mention in honorable mentions. But those were not going to be considered as part of my high five for this audience. So you're saying that our audience is not smart enough, That's too dumb to, to handle play Dan some, Cunningham's games. I, I, I because in our high five, Dan, I do bring heavier <laughs> no, games. I, and I hear that, but uh, these are know. these are so heavy that I don't even know if I'm they're, smart enough to. They're play not them. fit for human <laughs> consumption. Yeah. They are on that ledge. So, anyway, awesome. yes. What's so, number five? My yeah. number five um, is Space Park. Um, Space Park uh, by Keymaster Games with the designer Henry Audubon, who you guys just talked about last week in nature games like Parks and Trails. Um, space uh, be uh, Space Park um, is a weight of 1.75 um, with a game play time of 20 to 30 minutes of players 1 to 4, ages 14 and up, according to the publisher, but definitely lower than that. BGG saying 8 and up. Um, I really like Space Park because... It can be. It could come out um, very simply and be taught in minutes. Yep. It's one of those games that it's like very easy to get into. The number of options you have are very straightforward, um, and it's a beautiful game. It's gorgeous. Um, so many of the the the, uh, the keymaster games are really so gorgeous, and they did it here too. Um, so it, it's it's really a, a great game that I love to take out. Yeah, the cards and components and tiles are just awesome, aren't they? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this because. Um, it's not on my list, but it's just a great game. I think I have it. I'm trying to yeah, find it. Yeah, you, you do. <laughs> but it's, it's in shrink, and I bought it just because I, I have not played it, but I love the art so much. Like, it totally made me a Keymaster fan of, like, mm-hmm. this is... It has, like, that 1950s retro sci-fi yeah. type of feel to it. So really cool game. Well, and how about the publisher saying 14+, plus and Board Game Geek saying 8+. plus? Is that just because of choking hazard in toys, or is that just because <laughs> Probably Board Game Probably it does have Geek. those little, like, rockets. Yeah, it? It does, and the yeah. gems are... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're 13, you are swallowing those, like, big tacks. <laughs> so it's got to be 14. F- fun story about that one. Um, the guys at Keymaster actually reached out and said, hey... Would you be interested in, in helping and selling the rights to Lone Architects? And we had a good discussion then at that time to say, hey, you remember th- this was all this history with it. Are you aware of it? I don't know if they were fully aware of all that history, so we decided not to move forward with any of that. But that was kind of my first experience with Keymaster. Hmm. They were great guys. Oh, that's awesome. awesome. Yeah, yeah. There's something you didn't know, too. Well, no, you, I you never could have, You could have sold it to him for $100,000, <laughs> and then it would have blown up yeah, in a no, Brazilian customs office. <laughs> okay. My, uh, as long as it was insured for enough. <laughs> my number five is 2018 Space Base. This is designed by John D. Clare. The rank is currently 186 on board GameGeek and 30 in the family. Games two to five players, 60 minutes, 14 plus, 10 plus. The weight is 2.10. And in Space Base, <clears throat> pardon me while I just do a professional stall. How have we not had this as a game of the week? We really <laughs> haven't? I, I thought for sure it was a game of because the week. Because somebody at this table doesn't care for it. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I it like was, it a lot it was your more number than three Doug. back in episode 16. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but I really like space space, but you're getting different cards and you're upgrading cards the same, not in the same way, but as with a lot of games that John D. Claire does, there's a, a way to upgrade what you have from round to round and it just creates a really nice little tension. Um, this is a game that I actually used to own, but traded away and now want to try to get it back because I think my kids are finally at the age where we will play it, but you can stack points upon points upon points uh, behind the cards and turn a, a basic little card into a, a really cool card when the dice roll comes up in your favor. I've always enjoyed the plays. I just haven't always had the people to play it with, but I'm hoping that that will change over time as well. So that's my number five game, Space Base. Yeah, in a nutshell, it's very much a, a, a space-themed Machikoro. Type yeah, of, type of mechanism in that one. Yeah, and Bad Company is yeah. a game that we've talked about recently. We'll talk about it in the near future again that has some similarities too. All right, my number five is uh, Star Realms, published in 2014 uh, by Wise Wizard Games designers Robert Doherty and Darwin Castle. Uh, one that I almost overlooked, and then as I thought about it, those ones that were tipping on the edge, I'm like, I should probably throw this in. I've probably played it way more on the app than in yeah. physical real life version. And I've played more of Hero Realms, which is a fantasy version of the exact same game. Um, and in Star Realms, it is a deck building game. For all intents and purposes, it's a two player game back and forth uh, where you are constructing bases and adding new ships to your fleet, trying to uh, reduce your opponent's power down from 50 to zero uh, to win the game. And those bases offer you kind of defenses and protections to prevent against damage and uh, just a great little game. I don't even know what it goes for now, but you can get it's, it for 10, 15 bucks all day long. Barnes and Noble, yeah. you can find it. Can't even and, imagine how affordable it is on yeah. a secondary market. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that is my number five, Star Realms. Funny story about Star Realms, Darwin Castle, Rob Doherty, they cut their teeth as Magic the Gathering pros and mm. started went into game design after. I used to play in the game store that they were out in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And crushed them. No, I, <laughs> no. I don't actually remember ever playing them. That's but. interesting. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. What well, you got number four, Dan? Number four, I have a game called Quantum. Now, Quantum is a game that I really liked and I owned back in the day. Uh, I went to college with that designer, Eric Zimmerman. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So Eric, he did the rules of playbook, too. I mean, so big big guy out there. Richard Garfield is my uncle. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> no, I, I like Quantum. Um, unfortunately, it's really hard to come by right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a game that is a little bit heavier. Um, it's 2.48 on the scale, um, but it's by FunForge, so the components are great. Um, two to four players, 60 minutes. Um, it was published back all the way in 2013, so it's 10 years old now. It's been out of print for a while which normally I wouldn't put it on my list being so difficult to find, but it's on Board Game Arena. Mm. And I really enjoy I, the last year or two, I've played it another half dozen times on Board Game Arena, and it feels really cool when you're playing it there. And, you know, so it's very accessible when it comes to there. Yeah, this, this is a hard game to get. Let me, let me clean up what I stated earlier. Eric Zimmerman was either a grad student or a professor when I went to college. We're <laughs> yeah. quite, a, quite a few years apart, but he was at, at UW-Madison, the Games Learning and, and, and Society Department uh, when I was finishing up school. And then when I was a teacher, he was running a lot of those conferences. And probably the first person that I ever knew that talked about designing a board game. And at mm. the time when I heard about it, you know, 2009, 2010, is that things coming together 
Um, I thought that was just the strangest concept. So it's funny mm. how, you know, 15 years, things can really change. What yeah. do you like about this game? I've never played it. Okay, so so Quantum is, a, is I would call, a very elegant game in that um, you are all owning a bunch of spaceships. You're flying around from planets to planets, um, but each of the ships is represented by a die. The trick with the game Quantum, though, is you hardly ever roll that die. The die just represents what ship it is. So there's six different types of, type ship, of ship, yep. and the ones versus the sixes have very different powers, yeah. and, and they're inversely proportional between the speed of the ship and the strength of the ship. So it's, it's a very elegant way to run six different ships that are all just one die. And then to take control of a planet, you have to have dice wrapped around the planet that equal the value of the the, the planet, right? That, Isn't there yeah. something along mm-hmm. those lines? It's It was on my honorable mention, and I, yeah. I, I didn't feel comfortable putting it on there because it's been so long since I played it. Right. Yeah. Um, we got to play this great at game. a convention sometime or when we come across it. Do you own it? No. I yeah. sold my copy. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Is it <laughs> over still, to me already? We still have one to play. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Is it over to me? Yes. Yep. Number four is currently ranked at 3,512 on Board Game Geek and 1,422 strategy game of all time. Any guesses? The designers sitting to my right, four feet, Lunar <laughs> Architects 2016. I played, I've only played it once. I played it once at Game Holcon, but I had a blast. And with Dan coming on the episode today and me being at Noble Night yesterday, I was thinking about it, but sixty dollars was just a little too much for <laughs> too rich for your blood. Yeah. Hey, my, but um, my shelf has three three inch shrink copies. That don't I've say kept that; around. they're going to be gone. No, no. Um, but in Lunar they'll sell Architects, it to you for five hundred dollars. No, no, okay. only seventy dollars. Describe the game, Dan. Describe your game. Yeah, so so in Lunar Architects, players represent. Uh, architects at an engineering firm who are internally competing to design the best moon base. So a little like John Spike's game where there's a meta level, you're, yeah. you're actually designing the moon base, but not really the moon base, but the, you're designing the design of the moon base. And so as part of that, you're grabbing blueprints off the table and you're assembling them in a personal player base yeah. that you're collecting resources that are then paying for new pieces. You're scoring points along the way. And a couple times around the uh, the, the the time track that's happening, um, you have some scoring situations where you score some points. But what I liked about it a lot was the tile placement restrictions. Am I getting that? Am I misremembering that? No, there or, is. Well, that... that that part of the game, I really liked how they had to be set down on certain tracks and then the bonuses that kicked yep. off from it. So oh, yeah. one I want to play again, number four for me, and you're here. So I, <laughs> I thought it all makes sense, Moon makes Architects. Sense. All right. My number four is Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition. So good. So published in 2021 by Stronghold Games, the designer Sidney Engelstein, Jacob Frixilius, and Nick Little. Uh, Terraforming Mars, uh, the Ares Expedition is... Uh, somewhat of a distilled version of the the bulkier streamlined terraforming Mars, but <laughs> my it, little yeah, terraforming yeah. Mars, <laughs> my little terraforming Mars. Although it can run a little long, oh yeah. Um, but it is a kind of an action selection where where players are picking out what action they want to do that round, and if you the action that you pick, you get a bonus uh, for picking that one, but you also get to do. Um, the actions that the other players pick. So you're trying to kind of strategically think of like, oh, I think Dan's going to play this action, so I don't need to play that one even though I want to do it. Um, and and juggling that kind of, uh, and working together to compete <laughs> to terraform Mars. So 
Uh, it's a really interesting, fun game with with combos. I think the in most cases this would be a game that I don't really care for on the regard because there's a lot of um, personal interaction where you're just kind of focused on your own little base. However, that action selection portion is what brings that level of interaction that I yeah. feel like I'm um, playing with other people and not just by myself. Well, and there's a cooperative mode. There's in a cooperative well, mode, right? and then uh, I just got the Kickstarter for the expansion, which has a kind of a completely different cooperative mode that allows. So, in the 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 base game cooperative mode, it's more of a um, get so many points by in so many rounds type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. This new cooperative mode has everybody playing their own game to try and make sure that the planet stays uh, terraformed, basically. So. You're playing the same way that you would, um, but working together while you're doing it. So it's kind you of you lost a, me there a little bit. What's the new one do? Can you bottom line it for me? So you're p- still playing your same game, trying to do the best that you can. Okay, but everybody's actions are contributing to to, to the, your to keeping the planet. Yeah. Um, Habitable. Yeah, I'm glad you backed that. Selfishly, I I can't wait to play it. You know, that's kind of funny, guys. I didn't know you liked it. I've owned it since the first Kickstarter. (laughs) I've only played it solo and two-player, but not with you guys. Oh, I I really like Terraforming Mars. (laughs) There you go. And the Ares Expedition, I even like more. I know Mm -hmm. people might not be allowed to say it, but I said it. It, (laughs) it, It's quicker. It's quicker to set up. I I seem to be able to read the game better, Ares Expedition. Um, just from a color standpoint, a comprehension standpoint. So, yeah, that's a great one. All right, that's my number four, Terraforming yep. Mars Ares Expedition. Dan, number three. My number three is a copy because I put Space Base on there. So, whereas Michael had it at number five, I must like it more because um, <laughs> it's number three. <laughs> We're not um, that competitive with our high fives <laughs> here at the Game Schooler Podcast, okay. but no. Do you Dan, have it in your collection? Unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> so, we, so I'm the only one that has it in this collection. <laughs> yeah. I don't even like it. That's funny. No, it, it's interesting. You guys can fight over it. It's one I owned for a while and played a lot and enjoyed it and then ended up selling it because I was replacing it with other things from Jeremy yeah. Claire. But you know what? I, I found it again on Board Game Arena. And so I've actually oh, been that's playing awesome. it again frequently in Board Game Arena. I got my I dad to play to it. check it out there. So it's been good. Great. Uh, oh, back to me. Number three is... The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine, 2019 release, two to five players, 30 minutes, ages 10 plus, the weight is 1.98 out of five. The Crew is designed by Thomas Singh and published by Cosmos. It's won a lot of awards, uh, including, I wanted to make sure I got this one right, I thought it was the Spiel de Jars at some point. Man, look, there's so many awards, I can't scroll down and do all that and podcast at the same time. But in The Crew... You have uh, little missions. Essentially, you're taking tricks, and there's very limited communication in the game. There's a few, very few things you're actually allowed to say, and you communicate with this little chip in front of you to let people know, like, hey, if I'm going to take that trick or if I'm not going to take that trick or a higher card, lower card. Um, I love this game. This is another one where, for me, if I had more people to play it with, it would probably be my number one space game because I love trick-taking games. I love trick-taking games that have strategy. And this is also a cooperative. It's not just who can get the most tricks or call out the number of tricks they're going to win, but you have to try to win with your group. Um, Admittedly, my my wife didn't care for this one. I'm not sure that my... 
podcast co-host cares for this one, I, but I, I like this game. Um, I just have a really hard time getting it to the table, and yeah. I feel like you have to have players that understand trick-taking games, first of all, like the mechanisms of a trick-taking yeah. game, mm-hmm. but then it takes it another step of like, you also need to be good enough at trick-taking games to know how to properly manipulate mm-hmm. cards, which is right. a whole other level of strategy than just, oh, I'm throwing out cards because it's very specific things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And so I've had it, um, I've played it with trick-taking players and I've had it almost derail because it's just like... Well, the first time ah. you and I played it, we couldn't figure it out <laughs> yeah. because of the communication aspect. Do you, have you played this? I have played it. I've played it in groups of three and four, I think. And yeah, you're right. It takes a certain type of group that is familiar with trick-taking and familiar with limited communication yeah. and how to interact with those other people. So it's not a game for strangers. Yeah. yeah. And, well, <laughs> and that's where I've struggled. The one time my wife and I played it, she was having a hard time not insulting me. And I was like, no, we, we, we can't talk like that right now. We, we, <laughs> it's limited. Uh, but they also have another version. You need to, you need to use this token to tell me yeah, I'm exactly, an idiot. <laughs> exactly. Mission Deep Sea came out in 2021, and that one has been new and shrink on my shelf. Right now, that's the number one family game. Hmm. Um, I, I know it. But uh, the crew is something that when I go to conventions, when I'm out on the road, I could see myself uh, taking and hoping to get it played. But I don't know if I'll ever get it played again, to be honest. But I, I really enjoy it. I really do. All right. That is a good one. My number three is Alien Frontiers, published in 2010 by Game Salute and designer Tori Neiman. This is kind of well known as being probably the first biggest Kickstarter that ever yeah. happened of, of uh, got people to kind of open their eyes to, oh my gosh, you could do this stuff on Kickstarter. Now look at the wild beast we've unleashed. Mm-hmm. But Alien Frontiers is a fairly straightforward, simple worker placement game that is using dice as your workers and the value on the dice determines how powerful of a worker that that one is. And you can kind of block out um, your opponents from going to different spaces. And like I said, it's, a, it's almost a, at this point seems like almost naked that it doesn't yeah. have more stuff to it of what a worker placement game would be now. But I, I appreciate that, that kind of simplicity of that and a stone age, that type of a yeah. simple yeah. worker placement. And, and this one is a good one. Alien frontiers. It's well distilled. Yes. Say. There you go. Express. <laughs> All right, over to number two for me. Yeah, number two. So number two is a game that I actually had when I first wrote it as number one. Ooh. But I hadn't played it for about five years. I just remember really liking it. And then I played it last night solo and wasn't as enamored now by it. Now it's number seven. Now, it now it's number two. No, and it's it's actually, it was your number two back in episode 16. Uh, it was Tiny Epic Galaxies. Interesting. Uh-huh. So Tiny Epic Galaxies is a dice game that came out in 2015 um, by designer Scott Alms um, from Gameland Games. It's one of the line of Tiny Epic. I believe it was either the second or maybe the third Tiny Epic. Um but it's a, characterized by a, a big game within a small box. It's a dice game where you're rolling dice on your turn. You're selecting some to keep and activate, some that you can spend energy to re-roll, all to kind of claim other planets. Um, but the fun part is in other people's turn, you can spend your other type of resource to copy their action. Um, and... When it came out back in 2015, I felt like it was this amazing game, great interaction between the players. I look at it now and play, and it just feels like it's it's it. The rest of the industry has been leveled up to the point where yeah. now it's it's a good game. It's still my number two, but yeah. it's it's just not as standout as it used to be for me. 
Um, at, at the same time, they actually just uh, published Tiny Epic Galaxy's Blast Off back in actually in 2020, which is a more even more streamlined version. Instead of playing one to five players, it plays two to four. They took the text off the cards and made them much more simpler. Oh, wow. um, and they brought the age down to nine plus. Um, and it was recently on a, on a really great Target sale, I think. So I got it for pretty cheap. Uh, I haven't yet to play it with my kids, but I plan to. I think, uh, I, I mean, I remember playing that for the first time, and I, I don't know that I've played it since we played it a couple of times, I think, but that was one of them that I, it's not on my list this time. And it's one that I felt really worked as the, before the tiny Epic jumped the shark for me, where it was like, this was a small game compact and worked really well. Where as that series kind of went on, I felt like this just would be a really great blown up board game. Like you feel wh- like there's too many mechanisms in that small box, right? No, I think it's it's your limiting. Like I, in a lot of cases, I would like the game if it was presented as a normal size board game. Like mm-hmm. the idea of shrinking all these pieces down, and it's like I'm not traveling with this, and it's too fiddly and clunky, and it's like blow it up, give me the big version. I want to play the fifty dollar version of this game. Um, but Tiny Epic Galaxies works as the small game. Yeah. Like, it's not overly complex for the size. There's not a ton of pieces moving around. You yeah. Know, and those pieces are just like a, a resource tracker and some cards, and then the dice you're rolling into the dice box. Yeah, so perfect in, in that genre of game, I think. Awesome. Number two for me is Planet Unknown. 2022 release, one to six players, 60 to 80 minutes, 10 plus, weight 2.22 out of five. Designer Ryan Lambert, Adam Rayberg, and artist is Yoma. Publisher Adams, Apple Games. I actually just purchased this game this week from Dan. And when I got it in the house, I immediately said, look at this awesome game, kids. And usually people run out of the room. But do you know what sold the, that statement and brought kit. All three of my children came running back into the living room to see what is in that box when you lift the lid. <clears throat> a lazy Susan. And just. I'm waiting uh, for you to get frustrated that you don't have, you can't get this one to the table and I can buy it from you. This one's, <laughs> this one's already at the table. I'm going to be soloing it as soon as we get back from Appleton on Sunday evening. Getting back from the in laws, sitting down and playing it. It's tough to get right now. Do it. I did a little research prior to picking it up because the the price in the secondary market's really high. It's ridiculous. I did see Pegasus Spiel, a, a game store over in Germany, is getting more, and they have it slotted in as December, and it's the the English release. Hmm. So that's one of those things that kind of look at it. Well, if the stores in Europe are getting it and it's English release, there's Probably a, maybe a chance that some of those you have copies will find track their way on over that, here. Actually, yes. Uh, <sighs> the artist Yoma, who's actually Yorgo, is his name. Uh, he's how I got connected with Endless Winter. He is the publisher of Fantasia Games. He is Fantasia Games, and yep. so I know Adam Reberg because he's from uh, Minneapolis, I believe, and he comes to a lot of the conventions around here. I've met and chatted with him a few times. Um, so I backed it, and I got to know Yorgo from there, and it kind of went from there. So I can ask Adam or or Yoma. Yeah, please find out when. Another, so you when, just know all the people. I just know yeah. some of yeah, the people. Well, yeah, find yeah. out when another Doug, one is Doug, coming. Doug wants right. to know. All right. and, and I make this offer all the time. You can always borrow it. No, Doug. I cannot. He will not. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Because all I right. eat fried chicken when I play games. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just my games. 
All right, my number two is Planet Unknown as well. Yeah, so we, well, good, because I didn't actually talk about the game. I no. just talked about Lazy Susan. So tell our listeners about why that game is awesome. Yeah, so it is a um, tile placement game, kind of a polyomino tile placement game in which uh, those tiles are on a Lazy Susan, and you can pick up from the, the spot that's in front of you. You have two choices and, to make on your turn. And then on the next turn, that, that device is going to rotate, and you're going to get two new choices. And it's going to keep spinning around the table as we fill up our planet. And as we put those tiles down, we're going to be moving up tracks that um, give us more abilities and more combos as we continue to to fill up the entire planet. And once that is filled up, then you score, right? When, yeah. when I'm, and you get a little Land Rover that you're moving around to kind of well, clean up Well, and when tiles asteroids. are covered, that, that will knock off other bonuses and on other tracks, and you can... Um, when you get rows and columns completely filled in, there's other scoring bonuses. That when we played this at Gamehole Con, our, our local regional convention here this past fall, the fall of 2022, Doug had a perfect game, covered up <laughs> his entire board, yep. uh, and, and just it was a blast. The the other thing, it plays quickly. It does. It plays very fast. It, it's one of the few games. It's the only game I can think of that is a tile drafting that is fully simultaneous. Yeah, you know, and it really only works because of that lazy Susan, and you know that that puts it unique in its space. But that also means you can play two players, five players. I think it plays up to six. All yep, up to six, all within that one hour, two hour, fifteen. Well, and I think about like a game like Cottage Garden or something along those some of the Uwe Rosenberg ones that are in a similar vein. Your boy. Oh gosh, I wouldn't say that at all. He's, he's my boy. <laughs> he's Dan's boy. That's more accurate. Um, the setup time on those, setting up all the like the train of tiles and and like in patchwork and things like that, that when that is completely eliminated in the game is yeah. is huge. Yeah, I can't wait to play this more down the line. And I think what when it does become more available, I hope it will be a game of the week at some point. I think we're gonna get a lot, I'm I'm gonna get a lot of plays out of this and I look forward to playing it over the next few years. It was on my honorable mentions, so all right, Dan, moment so, of truth. What's my number, number one? one? I'm, it's probably going to surprise you because I'm not sure you guys have ever played it. Um, that it is, doesn't surprise me. Okay. Go ahead. No, so it's a game. Tom Lehman, who's got a pretty good pedigree Res already. Arcana. Um, this City. is ranked over 1,000, but it is my number one. Um, you want to guess? Is it Jump Drive? It is Jump Drive. All right. Yeah, so Jump Drive is a purely card game um, that's based on one of his older works called The City, but it's in the world of... I thought that was reversed. Yeah, I think that is Is it? Reversed. I think so. Jump Drive so. was first? I think Jump I think Drive so. came no, out. No, no, City came out in German. That's what it was. City we'll, came we'll out in German first, then Jump Drive, then English City. Absolutely. English, English City. <laughs> English City. But it takes it into the world of Race for the Galaxy, which is another card game. Um, but to me, Jump Drive is a very well-distilled kind of card play game where you're using cards as resources, you're generating, using those cards in combos to generate points, and it plays ridiculously fast. Yeah. And it plays really well solo. Um, officially... Really? It does. So there are solo challenges that you can do. Now... Officially, there wasn't a solo mode when the game was published back in 2017, but a, a you know, great board game geek person put together these solo challenges with some very simple solo rules, and it exploded. It went really well, and everybody was really great, so much so that the expansion, which comes out this month, which is fun, eight years, or no, ten years later, no, just 
six years later, an expansion comes out, it officially brings in those solo challenges into the main game. Cool. So, uh, Have you played cool. the city? Uh, I think I played it right before Jump Drive when it was the German version. Okay. So it's been a long time. To, to clarify, Dan is correct. The German edition did come out in 2011 for the city, and the English version did not come out until 2019. Yeah. Which and we when, played recently. I yeah. love. I love that oh. game. And when we... When that came out, people were saying this is re-implementing Jump Drive. Jump Drive oh, because yeah. Jump Drive came out in 2017, so it was <laughs> people were aware of it then at yeah. that point. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming I, I'm thinking Michael and I are going to sync up on number one. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Go ahead. No, you. Okay, number one for me is the Artemis Project, yep. and this is a 2019 release. Uh, Doug and I will talk openly about it here. Daryl Chow and Daniel Rochi are the designers. Artist is Josh Capel and uh, Dominic Mayer. Publisher is Grand Gamers Guild. So threw a lot of names at you, but there are a lot of people that that I really like uh, in the industry, and I, their names are all over games that I, I'm playing more and more. Um, Josh Capel is Kids Table Board Games. I mean, that that's he and his wife have that company, and we've talked about you know creature comforts and um, rec raiders and fossilis, and, and getting back to this game, the Artemis Project from 2019. It's a dice drafting and placement game. Well, not drafting. Well, play. It's a uh, it's a dice it's a dice placement game. You roll your dice and then you're placing them out on the board. And where you put them and the value of them gives you turn order. So, for example, in a resource, in one of the places you can get resources, if I put a one there, I'm going to be picking first, but I'm only going to be picking one. If Michael plays a six and he's this, the only other person there, he's going to take six resources if it's available, but he's going to be picking second. He may then push that way far down, and he may not get anything if if, if Dan comes in with a two. So, and then there's other ones that work in reverse order. So I like that you roll your dice and it's not bad whether you get high or low, where sometimes when you roll dice in worker placement games or something is like, great, I rolled all ones. Now I can't do anything. I'm going to get blocked out everywhere. The tension is on the the number and when you got into that market. Yep. Yeah. Um, just an incredible game, and I have been waiting <laughs> to add this yeah. game to my collection. I <laughs> backed it in 2019 or 2020. Might I? I'll, I'll have to look, but I backed it a long time ago, and uh, still waiting for it to arrive um, on the water in the warehouse any day. So that that's number one for me. <laughs> you must and, have backed the expansion then, because I've, yes. I've had this one on my shelf for quite a while now. And yeah, I didn't came know you out. wanted to play. <laughs> I'll bring it to game. Well, I've got it. Doug oh, has yeah. it as well. Yeah. I got it on yeah. when I, a board game store was condensing down to one location, and I <laughs> snagged up the Kickstarter for 50% off. Sweet deal. Yeah, look at you. Uh, but, but awesome game. Yeah, you're trying to build a base on Europa, and then what? what's the deal with the abilities in this game? Because I, I, I seem to remember, but I, it's been a while since playing it, but... The, how the bonuses, the combos, there's some combo-rific stuff in here, no? Uh, no, I think you're just... Uh, well, you get little... Um, uh, like special ca- card, like tiles that bonus give you bonuses when you do certain They're uh, like module. I'm trying to think of what... Yeah. The, like capsules or something yeah. that yeah, you yeah, add yeah, on yeah, your yeah. ship. That's that that as you fill them up, you're, yeah. you're getting points and you can't have 
too many spacemen lingering about. Yeah, plays well solo. Grand Gamers Guild has awesome components, and I, I yeah, I'm excited to get this one to the table more. All right, and mm-hmm. any that uh, weren't mentioned that you want to do a special mention of, Dan? I've got two categories of things that I want a special mention on. The first is for some reason <clears throat> there exists <laughs> clear throat here multiple space games that are also dexterity games, flicking games. Mm. And I have owned three of them, um, three different flicking dexterity space games. Flip and that ships? includes, uh, no, I'm not even counting flip ships. You didn't count flip no, ships? No, no, because that's not really space. You're on, you're on Earth and they're attacking us. Oh, okay. So anyway, so there is the very straightforward Cosmic Kaboom, which actually is very much just like Crokinole. You're basically playing Crokinole. My little Cosmic um, Kaboom. <laughs> yeah, basically. And um, super light. It's a you know 1.5, um, but plays really fast and, and is pretty fun and very portable. Um, the uh, the other two are a little heavier. Um, there is The Final Flick Tier. Gabe Barrett did a, did a solo publishing of a Kickstarter, which I, I got in uh, after the Kickstarter, but did find a copy. Didn't think it was a huge run, but it's you're flicking your little spaceships around to different planets and claiming different things, and I really, really like that flicking idea, which is married in the game Ascending Empires, which is significantly older, 2011. It's a little heavier. It's a 4X game, what we would say, what is it? Exterminate, um, Explore. exploit, explore, and... Uh, exchange obliviate something yeah. else i don't know <laughs> but it is it is a heavier game where it's going to take probably an hour and a half but it's still flicking ships around oh, yeah one. i did not like that one yeah you didn't like that one <laughs> explore um, expand exploit expand. and exterminate yes and that game is, went way out of print was very expensive i bought it when it was really too expensive sold it when it was about as expensive and then they announced a um a, a new version coming out uh, from WizKids in q3 of this year where they use a play what mat. is the game? there you go well and that would Ascending Empires. I think that was called. kind of the big hiccup for me on that game was that it it was like puzzle piece board. Yes. And so there was like... Yeah, the Zenith it, edition is So if out, you right. flicked it and like, oh, that piece wasn't down, and it would just yep. completely derail your turn. So the yeah. idea of that being on a playmat would... But I'm also terrible at dexterity playing against the Crokinole <laughs> champion. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how well my Euro skills are. <laughs> Right, I'm getting it, pounded. It is funny that there's <laughs> games that are trying to marry this flicking with Euro style. Yeah. But the second category of my honorable mentions is the much heavier simulation games of space. And I mentioned this, but there are two of them that I've owned and played. Uh, the first, uh, well, there's three. One's High Frontier, which is way over my head. It's way too heavy. I owned it for a while. I tried playing it, and and okay, as a as a getting an, a master's from MIT was still over my head. You have a master's from MIT and yes. an undergrad. Look yes. at you. Sorry. <laughs> Don't. But, why you gotta apologize for being <laughs> smart and hardworking? But what I've really liked is the game. Um, Four point eight two. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. That's why you got to apologize. Listeners of the Game Schooler podcast. Four point seven on the on the third edition. The, in my collection, I have one game, one game that I own that is a four, and it is a 4.01. This game that Dan is talking about is a 4.82. Does it? Does yours really say 4.82? There's a couple versions. Which high one Frontier? There's a, there's a third edition. There's High Frontier. There's high a, Frontier for All High Frontier for All is, is the big one, including all the expansions. Okay, I'm okay. looking at High Frontier third editions at a 4.7. Phil Eklund, Adam H. Lindbergh. So wow. Phil Eklund is a rocket scientist. Yeah. So, yeah. What kinda. else? Okay. <laughs> but that, so that's one, of the, that's one of the simula- yeah. simulation games that I've um, 
I tried to play and was it was tough. But another simulation game that I have enjoyed is Leaving Earth is the game, and this one's only this I've heard about three point seven two only um, only, and and it's actually ranked like six hundred ish. Um, it was published by the Luminaris Group, which the funny story behind that is the Luminaris Group is essentially not a game publisher. They are a quilting tool company. <laughs> now that is a that, funny story. That that Joe, the the designer Joe Fatula, used to work at, and and essentially used the company to box the components up and print the cards and and ship them out of there. So they're the, technically the publishers. Um, it is an incredibly deep simulation in that you have to calculate how much rocket mass you have. And I would never play this anything but solo um, because you, you sit down and you're, you're, you're doing these charts and you're figuring out how am I going to get out to the Damn. moon and then out to Mars. and then oh, I don't want to have to do a pivot table while playing a board game, it, my no, man. See, but I enjoy those I types of puzzles. I know you do, and that's, that's awesome. That is awesome. Now, the, the, the last this, one. This is going to be the most listened to download episode. We're going to have so many emails from people that are just gonna love Dan. Oh no, my brain is turning. To I know, goo. <laughs> but forget the the high frontier for all. Uh, leaving Earth looks. Oh, that, that looks tough. It's it's fun. I mean, honestly, it's uh, it's, it's laugh like, out loud. The hilarious. year is nineteen fifty six. Mankind stands at the dawn of a new age, the space age, when the flying bombs of yesteryear will become the rocket ships of tomorrow. That's an awesome intro. Leaves out the part about having to figure out how much fuel you have or else you're going to explode. Uh, no, you just get stranded and fly out to space. It's fine. Become Major Tom. All right, what else you got? So, so my third one, which is, has got a good story associated with it, um, is a game that was originally published back in 1973. It was a hex and counter game. Um, Clue. It was called Triplanetary. Um, and this was a game that... You know, it was pretty well known to the Hex Encounter people. It's a, it's a space game. Um, but back in 2018, Steve Jackson said, we want to reprint this one. And they made it as a giant whiteboard. Literally, it would probably take up most of the table. It is three quadfold, no, three sixfold boards, I think, that you put together to make Whoa. this huge hex map. But my favorite part of it, it's the best implementation of inertial movement I've ever seen in a game. Now, for our listeners at home and me, can you define inertial movement? <laughs> yes, of course. Is that what's happening in Junk Orbit? Junk Orbit. Okay. Yes, so Junk Orbit is similar. It's close. It's a little simplified. Whereas um, Triplanetary, once you're moving in one direction, um, you will continue that until you fire your thrusters backwards and slow yourself down. And so... This is a game that you could really mess up and fly off into nowhere and be, you know, stranded because you're out of fuel. So I, f- I feel like some of these games, if you buy a copy, NASA calls you on the phone and it's like, I think <laughs> hey, you may be interested well, in our space program. What are you doing program. this weekend? We got an internship for you. No, my buddy Dan told me about it. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. I'll forward it on. So I backed this on the Kickstarter yeah. just because it was really cool, and it has some solo scenarios you can play. Um, back in 2018, when it finally launched, GameholeCon, our local convention, was hosting a version of this game, and I was like, this is cool. I actually get to play with other people. I know the rules. This will be neat. Uh-oh. So I show up. This is right after the release, and there are four people there. And one of them is Steve Jackson himself. He came to GameholeCon to play this. And you had set up in two teams. And I was on Steve Jackson's team. And so I was like, we were the, the pirates versus the other two. And we were flying around. And it was, it was, it was a great experience and very cool. And, and I've only probably played it twice since. And they were both solo. But every time I played, it's a really you cool experience. You think of Steve Jackson. And that's I think awesome. Of Steve Jackson. 
Any other honorable mentions, Dan, from your list of 18 that you want to bring to the table? <laughs> no, no, that's good. I have two. Okay. Uh, terraforming Mars, which we talked about, and I just said the terraforming Mars industry. If time and players are available, I'll always play it. I don't own any of them because I have friends who own them, but I, I really like it. And then the second one is one that's currently on my solo slash review table, and that's Wormholes. Mm-hmm. I've been in the rules um, over it the Dan last just few days. Number one I just did. realized I forgot where I was going to try to uh, get a solo play in before the podcast. I just didn't get around to it. It's one that I had a really good experience playing with with you last year at ACD Games Day, Doug, even though we played it wrong, but just the stories that came out from it. Uh, um, and, and Peter McPherson is the designer of that, and that's the same person that designed Tiny Towns, which is one of our all-time favorite games in our house. So that Wormholes is a game that's not on my list now, but if we repeat this in another 100 episodes, I could see it being on there. That's yeah. my number zero now. <laughs> number no, zero. No, I've, I've played that six times solo in the last two months, so I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah, I can't believe you forgot it too, Dan. <laughs> um, my, uh, my honorable mentions were Galaxy Trucker, the second edition. Yep. It's a great little game about building a spaceship and then watching it blow up. <laughs> um, Eminent Domain, which I think might have been on my list last it time. It was, yep which uh, has a similar action selection and follow type of thing that um, Terraforming Mars has. And then I have a game that I think I may be the only person that likes it, which is Mission Red Planet. Um, I want to play it. I haven't played that yet. Which Is that Bruno Cathala? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Fiduti. Yeah. Fiduti. Oh, different Bruno. Okay. Um, it actually might be both of them. But it's a, it can be kind of a mean game. Um where you're, you can really screw people up. Love mean games. Which uh, is why some people don't enjoy it. It is Bruno Cathala and Bruno Faduti. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the last one, which I was surprised showed up on fa- space exploration, but I really couldn't push it that far, which was First Rat. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I saying and it I'm was like, on the board game geek list. About, I couldn't justify it. It is about building a rocket, but I don't nah, really necessarily get any space theme really. out of it. But no. yeah. great game. What do you, what okay, you, there was one more that I was sure one of you guys would mention because it was on your list from before. It was Junk Orbit. You even mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Um, and I think two weeks ago you talked about how there's a new square box coming out. Um, yeah. I'm excited about Junk Orbit and that new game because it's got a solo mode. So I'm just excited that that's The actually, original one didn't? No, it didn't. Interesting. The original didn't. Yeah. Okay. And, Cool. So, well, there that brings everything full circle. It's a lot of games and a lot of history and a lot of names. <laughs> All right. Well, if you like what we're doing, subscribe to the podcast um, uh, to get the episodes as they come out. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at GameSchoolerU. I want to thank Dan Cunningham for uh, sharing his time with us and, and talking about uh, his experiences and, and sharing his high five with us. So we really appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. Um, little different outro tonight as well. I assigned some homework at the top of the podcast probably an hour and a half ago. Please email us about your friendly local game store and, and we'll we'll read it on air and we'll use their names if you have their permission to use their names and that whole thing. But tell us about the friendly local game stores that you go to and what makes them awesome and make some content for us on what's <laughs> awesome with gaming in that segment. Yeah, cool. And then next week, I have no idea what we have coming because we haven't planned it yet. So <laughs> it'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, but uh, last but not least, thank you so much for spending the last hour or so with us. We really appreciate it. Now get out there and keep gaming. Keep gaming.